We have Rudolf Penikov on the line as well. I might just bring him in. So I'll ask the question and I'll bring him in at the same time. Hello, Rudolf. Hello, Tom. I finally was able to dial in. <laughs> it's good to have you on the call. As you know, we have William R. Buckley. I know you've, you've talked to William in, in Dick Gordon's Second Life course. I'm just going to ask William a question and then I'll, I'll allow you to... to Throw out your own ideas and questions as well. But as I was saying, as I was saying, William, we have a number of students, undergraduate, graduate students who listen to this podcast. And as you say, you know, artificial life needs more philosophy currently. What is your recommendation for these students to be better artificial life practitioners? What kind of philosophy should they be reading? What should they be thinking about, in your view? Well, I can tell you what I'm reading these days, and that's biosemiotics. Um, I picked up a book by the man Jesper Hoffmeyer with the title Biosemiotics, and it is very interesting in its analysis of what living systems are versus the neo-Darwinian paradigm. And frankly, I think that neo-Darwinism is overblown, um, over-self-important, and does not really convey uh, to the human mind exactly what the nature is of living systems. Living systems have holistic qualities that cannot be uh, analyzed with reductionist philosophy. And we really do need to, to understand these uh, complicated interactions between parts and wholes. And much of biology for the last 150 years has been all about parts with a complete ignorance of the wholes. Um, Marcello Barbieri, I believe, is correct in his assessment that there are more than the genetic code involved in living systems. And uh, this particular book does a very good job of detailing all of the relevant issues. And I would recommend that, um, in fact, anyone who is serious about artificial life should start with philosophy, and particularly um, philosophy of biology and semiotic theory. Very good. So what you're saying fundamentally is that Dawkins in the late 80s was right, but contemporary Dawkins is wrong. Dawkins gave some very good ideas, some good starting points. I was quite impressed with the selfish gene. Um, But I think that that, um, he's moved away from the core. He's... he's analyzed a lot of interesting issues, and he's posited uh, many interesting ideas. But I don't think that his ideas alone are correct, and I don't believe that the reductionist program is the right solution for understanding living systems. Agreed. Agreed. So Dawkins should be on the bookshelf, but also should be shared with a wide variety of other authors. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So we've lost Rudolph from the call, um, but I mean, I want to I want to move from this period that we're describing to the present day. You have a, a current development that you're very excited about. Would you like to introduce that to the biota community? Sure. Um, you know, the the real father of artificial life is not Chris Langton. Chris may have coined the phrase, but um, ultimately, artificial life as a field derives from the work of John von Neumann. I have been fascinated with von Neumann's cellular automata since about 1972 and spent an awful lot of time studying it. Indeed, one of the uh, problems with his model is that it is very computationally intensive and only in the current decade are we able to see 
um, performance of simulation software that is capable of demonstrating, say, self-replication within his model on a reasonable time scale. There is a product called Golly that you can get from SourceForge, which is a simple self, uh, cellular automata simulation tool. It has been extended to support more than the game of life and now will support a whole variety of cellular automata systems, COD, von Neumann, extensions of those. And within that environment, you can see some of this work. So um, now it occurs that there are self-replicating cellular automata configurations that do perform self-replication within a reasonable amount of time, 15 minutes or so on a contemporary computer. The problem with those kinds of models is that they're all holistic. That is that uh, the mother configuration constructs all of the daughter and then turns the daughter on and the daughter then performs its own self-replication by constructing its daughters. But that's not really how living systems work. The way a living system really works is that, except at the, the single cell level when you're talking about bacteria and so forth, it turns out that um, you know higher organisms, humans, they create uh, eggs. And these eggs then go on to develop into the whole organism. Or at least that's what they're supposed to do. The question has been, how do you build a machine because that's what von Neumann models are. They're machine models of self-replication. How do you build a machine that is able to construct an egg? And I have one model. That particular model is described in a paper called Computational Ontogeny that you can find in the journal Biological Theory. And there is, to date, only one such model. The way this works is by a process I call partial construction. So in this case, the mother creates a small but critical portion of the daughter and then turns that on and retracts from the daughter. So the mother doesn't influence the daughter at all anymore. After that, the daughter then reads its tape. And maybe I could go through a, a description of how these machines actually look. But it reads this tape, and from the tape, it is able to construct all the rest of itself. But it needs all of its self to be fully constructed before it is then able to construct its own eggs. And, uh, and that's a very different notion of self-replication, machine self-replication, than von Neumann had envisioned. So essentially, what I've been able to do is build a machine zygote. And the analog to the real world that I see, it looks to me like a seed. If you take a, the average seed and break it in half, you'll find that within is a small plant. And everything is there, some leaves, a little trunk, except there are no roots. And, uh, of course, there must be some connection to the endosperm of the seed, but there is no real root structure. And when you plant this, the roots develop, and the plant, the small plantlet, uh, essentially a, a homunculus, grows itself. And, uh, and that's pretty much what occurs with this particular machine model of self-replication. So we have Jeff Spira in the chat asking about sexual maturity in this model. Well, these particular uh, configurations do not have sexual format. Um, the only person that I know who has really looked at sex within machine models is uh, 
Paul Vitanyi, and I have studied his papers, but I have not yet been able to incorporate his work into my own. I'm sure that it must be possible, but um, those are going to be much, much more complicated configurations than what I'm working with now. And I might say that within the cellular automata of von Neumann, his 29 states, these uh, configurations are actually quite large. They will be several million cells, and that's exclusive of the tape. The tape is just a, a, let me describe this in a sense. The configuration itself will be of some extent in, in two dimensions, but the tape is a one-dimensional appendage that strings out for an awful long time. And the tape will be composed of instructions that uh, are represented by a certain number of bits. Think of it abstractly as bits. And it corresponds that the number of bits per instruction is 5 or 6 or 7. Efficiently, you can do it in 4, but it's not very easy to accomplish that goal. So we'll just say that it's 5. And it turns out that um, you will need approximately 3 of these instructions to describe every 1 cell of the configuration. And so if you have a configuration that is 1 million cells, the tape itself will be 15 million cells. And uh, it, as a result, it takes an awful long time for these things to, to execute. Well, we have Rudolf Pinnikov back on the line. Rudolf, as you listen in to this evening's discussion, do you have any questions for William? Yeah, I think it would be probably better to focus a little bit more on the environment for the artificial life rather than on the life itself. Do you have any comments on that? Actually, that's a reasonable interpretation. Remember that um, there are two sides to living systems. There's the genetic component and then the, um, the component that is the whole real living organism, the cell itself. All of, it, all of the parts within the cytoplasm and the cell wall and so forth. So you need to, to have a complete or holistic view of these systems instead of just a reductionistic view. The reductionist view is the view of Dawkins, who concentrates on the information which is represented by DNA. And I'd like to point out, DNA does not contain information. It's just a molecule. The sequence of, uh, of nucleic acids that comprise that molecule as a sequence represent the information that DNA makes available to the environment in which it is uh, a part, which is the cell. So you have the genetic component, which is a representation of information, and you have the machine component, which interprets that information. And both of those parts have to be considered together. And I think it's really wrong in, in the work of, of Dawkins to concentrate only on the DNA itself. The rest of the cell is important. In fact, it's yeah, a I would component. agree, yeah. Indeed, indeed. But, yeah, I would like to stress that uh, we shouldn't try to simulate living cells because then that's going to be nearly impossible. The problem is not that project. it's... The problem is not that it's impossible. You must recognize that the price of computation, the price of storage is going down. It is 
been going down ever since computers were first built, and it will become vanishingly small. Um, the throughput of machines is growing almost without bound. That's kind of Moore's law. So we have plenty of computational resources, if not today, within the very near future. The real problem is what you put into the model. How much, of, uh, how much do you bias your model? The real issue is bias. Agreed. But, uh, shouldn't we just uh, work with an involvable instruction set, or rather uh, instruction sets of which the best involvable instruction set uh, is selected upon? rather than try to simulate bio biological cells or something like that? Actually, you get at something that, that seems reasonable. And, you know, as a computer scientist, I can say what you're talking about is a microprogram that over time evolves so that the instruction set that is supported by the computer is more and more capable, gives you more and more features, gives you more interesting features, something like that. And, and that seems like a reasonable approach because you are interacting the macro scale with the micro scale. And, and that is more inclusive. It gets to be more like living organisms. That's what the problem is with the EvoGrid. I think that there's too much mm, bias in the system. There's too much defining our expectations instead of simply waiting to see what happens. You know, that, that's what occurred in, in nature. It, there was enough time, and we waited to see what happened, and in the end, you had uh, the nature, the universe able to look at itself through the agency of human intellect. Indeed. Also, a, a big part of nature is that there's always a new challenge just around the corner for life that's emerging. I mean, when love crawled out of the sea, it might be a very interesting example. I mean, uh, there's new challenges all the time, and I don't see that in artificial life as in a complex environment. Uh, always in programs like uh, Tierra, there are very few challenges for the life itself, unless the life forms interact and try to compete for some resources. Then the uh, that interaction might make the uh, environment a little bit more complex, but it's not selecting for anything that we would yeah, call very useful, like uh, finding solutions to problems. Yeah, the, you know, there's another thing that I observe, and that is you can find examples that are analogous to niche selection, niche creation, but you don't really see the kind of dynamic interaction that uh, within artificial life models that you see in the real world, in, in physical life. And it is the fact that organisms not only move into niches, but they modify the niche. And when they modify the niche, they also modify the selective pressure upon themselves. And so there is this, this ecological concern that doesn't really come across in most of the A-life models that I've seen. Definitely. You might say that a living cell is a niche for the replication of the uh, information in the DNA itself. That's a reasonable interpretation, sure. So switching things up a little bit, uh, William, how did, you, how did you first start corresponding with Dick Gordon? I'm not exactly sure. What I 
could do is search through my email and find out when I first tried to correspond, but I can say that the Internet has been a boon to my research. Probably in 2001 or 2002, when things really started to come together, email and other mechanisms, and I was able to browse the web and find the work of other people, you know, I'm, I'm pretty gregarious. And when I find someone who's doing some interesting work in which I, I find interest, then I just pick up the phone and call them, or I will send them email just out of the blue and try to strike up a relationship. I can mention many, many people. Um, one in particular is Danielle Monge, who used to be the director of the Logic Systems Laboratory at the École Polytechnique Fédérale of, in uh, De La Zone, which is in Switzerland. And he found interest in my work in cellular automata, particularly von Neumann cellular automata. And at the time, I was, a well, reasonably close to having finished my graduate degree at Cal State Fullerton. So the problem is that at Cal State Fullerton, no one understood anything about cellular automata, much less von Neumann's work. And it was very hard for me to find like-minded individuals. I had to reach across the world to find one. Um, he befriended me, and we got to talking about a lot of interesting issues, and he could recognize that I was coming close to actually having a self-replicator within that system. Um, little did I know that it actually would perform partial construction. That was kind of a flash in, in 2005. I was thinking about the model, and I realized suddenly realized that it would perform in this particular fashion. Let me give you the... There's a paper that's published in, in the Proceedings to Automata 2008. I didn't actually attend the conference, but this 50-page paper is in there. One of the problems I had with this paper is that it is so large, but you need it to be that large in order to actually address all of the attendant issues of self-replication in von Neumann's environment. So it was hard to find an appropriate venue. I sent it initially to the Journal of Cellular Automata, and it was, uh, it was rejected roundly. But one of the things in the rejection letters that I got was a comment that said that, that this paper presented no new VISTA. That's the quote, no new VISTA. For cellular automata, now or in the future. And that particular comment really irked me to no end. In fact, I found it to be rather insulting. The reason is because... Um, there was no recognition of what partial construction was. I didn't really give a full description, but I did describe, you know, in a page and a half what I was talking about. The problem is the paper was already huge and no one wanted any more, any more uh, pages added to the paper. It's very, very dense material. So I asked the reviewers, I commented back, I, I replied to their rejection letters, and I asked them in a challenge. I said, go out and find any self-replicating cellular automaton that's been published and convert any 10 cells exclusive of the tape from their non-ground state into the ground state and then show that it still self-replicates. I'm still waiting for a counterexample. There hasn't been one presented. In the case of my partial constructor, it's, as I say, about a million to two million cells in size. And you need all of those cells to be constructed in order for it to be able to build a replicant of itself. 
even to be able to build its seed. However, you only need 20% of those cells to be constructed for it to be able to build the rest of itself. When I was a kid and talking about biology in high school, in junior high school, one of the comments that I remember from my teachers is that, and, and this was when they were first starting to think about the genome as a sequence of instructions, literally as a computer program. That was the model coming out of, of everybody's head. And the question was, how do you encode all of the information into the genome such that it can then build, you know, a whole organism? The question is encoding. And in order for you to build a partial constructor, you must have much more encoding than you need for a holistic self-replicator. That's the real key. If you understand how encoding can be pushed into the, the tape as opposed to having to be explicated uh, in a, a complete construction, then you will understand how partial construction works. And uh, I think it has some relevance to biological models in particular, uh, a researcher in South Africa has recognized that the model of partial construction has ontological implications for the status of viruses as a living organism. And certainly a lot of this overlaps with Dick Gordon's own, you know, own dabblings with regards to digital embryonology as well. I mean, this is what fascinates me with your connection with Dick. I mean, you say that you, you can start a corresponding with him in around 2001, but if you had... Have you had greater and more meaningful correspondence up to his, his current Second Life course? Um, yes. In fact, Dick is an embryologist, and he understands embryology very, very well. He has devoted his life to a particular model organism, which is the axolotl, but he's much more interested in the physical uh, environment in which development occurs. Um, there are some other interesting people within the course. Vincent Fleury, who is in France, um, I don't know exactly which institution he's in, but I believe it's the University of Paris. Um, and he tends to be much more concerned with the physics. Richard tends to be much more concerned with the chemistry and the mechanics. Um, my interest actually is primarily in trying to understand how organisms develop with an eye to abstraction to physical models that do not involve nucleic or amino acid-based chemistries. I'm literally interested in building machines of non-biological form which go through developmental processes which produce children and which um, are therefore subject to the effects of natural selection. So what I've done is, is run around looking for people who have similar interests who will tolerate my mm, eccentricities and perhaps facilitate my ability to understand how real-world biological organisms go through a developmental process so that I can abstract those processes and impart them into physical machines. So with six minutes remaining, I'm, I'm interested in, in taking your particular perspective with regards to the future of artificial life. 
but I'd also like to frame this in some regard. I mean, my understanding is that you're, you know, you're the quintessential artificial life hobbyist in terms of someone who's been doing this for a number of years who submits papers to uh, to both conferences and periodicals. But really, I mean, you're not an academic, are you? Artificial life is not your day job; it's just your passion. It is my passion. My day job is I'm occasionally a longshoreman. I've been a computer programmer for a long time. Actually, at this point in my life, I'm probably retired. But, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm looking at going back to school. In fact, if, if things work out, I will probably pursue a Ph.D. program with Richard and do it in, in Manitoba, um, primarily thinking about genetic regulatory network, networks because I think that that's the, the place I need to concentrate in order to abstract as best as possible and apply it to my physical models. I'm not really an academic. I'm a closet academic. Well, I think that's the nature of all artificial life hobbyists. (laughs) They won't let me in. (laughs) That's that's exactly the point. Um, So, but I mean, in terms of your your vision for the future, how do you integrate what is a growing and even more dynamic artificial life hobbyist community, both with academia and and also with industry? What's, What's your vision for this? Oh, I don't have any vision for industry. I don't really don't care what industry does with it. I'm much more interested in actually building these abstract models and watching a physical machine go through this process three or four generations in a row. You know, I have interest in philosophical concerns, in interesting questions. I'll give you a very good question. You, you tell me, is life an obligation? And I think that that's perhaps the most profound question anyone can ask themselves. Well, if the tree falls in the forest, then obviously the observer is part of the question. Mm -hmm. So to even ask the question requires life to be an obligation in order to observe the question. Well, part of the question is, um, you know, do you have an obligation to live? Do you have an obligation to pass off to another generation the opportunity to live? Those kinds of questions are very heady and if you start to think about them very much, you get lost in an awful lot of ancillary issues. And to me, you know, I've already got my children, so I've accomplished part of that goal. And I'm, I'm almost at the end of my own life cycle, so I've accomplished part of that goal. Can I pass that off, the ability to live, to things that aren't related to either of those two environments, to, to myself uh, by not killing myself, you know, the, the comment of, was it Albert Camus, whose who's, uh, comment was, the only question is whether you commit suicide or create children. I've accomplished those things. But now I'm, I'm thinking, is there any other way that life becomes an obligation that I should pass it off to, say, a physical machine? And uh, I'd like to know, can you really build a machine that lives, which is not biological? The only other models that people have are the things like proto-life, and that's where they're trying to create uh, living organisms by engineering them. Creating a cell, engineering it, uh, designing the genome for a particular purpose, getting all of those pieces of the puzzle together so that it continues on on its own. And, uh, and that's one aspect. But I'd like to abstract it from, from the biological. So, to throw that question back to you, consider four systems. The financial system, the road system, the legal system, and the system that we can describe as the internet, whatever that may be. 
Do you think that these, all these systems have properties of life that are non-biological fundamentally, particularly with regards to their ability to outlive us and our discussion? Uh, not the legal system. I don't think so. Uh, roadways, perhaps, but probably not. When you get to automated factories, now you're getting there. You know, I, I, I hear some people complain about the work of Hod Lipson, that it isn't really a self-replicator. I disagree. Um, I think he's got a really interesting model. Most of his work looks like self-assembly. I understand that. But if you get these complicated robotics units that he's building with enough capability that they can stand at a lathe and mill out their parts, they can operate the machinery that we already have for building semiconductors and so forth. They can handle a soldering iron and they can mine materials, um, they're getting very close to providing the kind of living system, physical living system that is non-biological that captures my attention because they'll be able to then operate all of the facilities, utilize the roads, utilize automotive transportation, that kind of thing, in order to facilitate their own bootstrapping. It kind of depends. Legal systems don't really seem to be it because they exist through the uh, facilities of the human mind. But however, they exist outside a human life cycle and completely independent of the humans that maintain them fundamentally. Yeah, but they're more like the memes that, uh, that Dawkins talks about. So as we have the benefit of Rudolph on the call, I'll give him the opportunity to ask uh, William the, the final question for this evening. Rudolph, as, as you listen in, what is the pressing question for you? Thank you, Tom. Um, well, I'm, I'd like to go back to industry and uh, software companies. Um, myself, for instance, I'm really considering seriously to uh, propose having them develop artificialized software which is able to meet some challenges. Uh, a little bit similar to what Stephen Taylor did in Imagination Engines. I mean, he writes uh, good old-fashioned artificial intelligence, but it's neural networks which even come up with completely new ideas. And I think making artificial life useful in such a way that it uh, will solve real-life problems, it will drag it much more into society and create a much bigger user base for it. What do you think about it, Bill? That sounds like something which is biased with human intention. And I'm trying desperately, desperately, to excise models of human intention. I don't know whether I'll be able to accomplish it. The partial constructor is a very interesting example, and yet there's an awful lot of human intention engineered into that solution. Sure, but yeah, I would like to see artificial life ultimately evolving in the, into a smart entity, and then it will have to be able to communicate with humans, and yeah, the, the human intention is very there's, important there's, in that, isn't it? Uh, there's an expectation there. You say that it will have to communicate with humans. I don't think it necessarily yeah. has to communicate with humans. It might want to cut itself off completely from us, decide that we're a useless, uh, you know, a useless cul-de-sac in the evolutionary pathway. Well, so far, I think we're the most interesting species that I know, at least. 
we might we might be, but that you have to admit is a biased point of view. Well, Other species fine. may not think we're so interesting. Yes, I own cats, and I think uh, yeah. certainly cats think that they're the most interesting species. <laughs> <laughs> and rightfully so. I mean, I work for my cats. <laughs> anyway, rounding off the evening... How does your wife feel about it, Tom? Well, I, I work well. Let, let's not go that far, Rudolph. Let's end the evening on a nice, calming note by thanking uh, William. And look, William, I, you participated in last week's... Uh, sorry, last... Uh, last episode of Biota Live, and I really would like to have you back. I think your insights this evening have been uh, particularly topical, and I think also historically uh, a number of the things that you've talked about with regards to cellular automata, with regards to core war, with regards to uh, self-replication is lost in a lot of the contemporary artificial life narrative, which is obviously what you said previously as well. So, I mean, it would be wonderful to have you as a, a kind of continued participant in Biota Live. I, I'd be delighted to participate. It will take a little time for me to um, warm up to the format and so forth. I'm, and I'm, I'm doing an awful lot of reading these days, but uh, I'm sure that there will be many comments that I can give in the future that will be relevant and insightful. The nature of Biota Live is really to give a completely open forum. It's almost the, the anti-conference in that regard. And certainly, I mean, having folks like Rudolph and Gerald de Jong and obviously Dick Gordon, Bruce Damer, I mean, there is a long list of people that are regular participants in Biota Live, obviously Jeffrey Ventrella um, in the last episode as well. And what we're trying to do here is, is create a, an open forum of discourse, but ultimately, as I've said, it's used as an educational tool by uh, undergraduate and graduate students currently, and they're also very welcome to participate. I'd also like to thank uh, Jeff Sphera for, uh, for participating in the chat this evening, and also would like to encourage Jeff to participate in a, in a future Biota Lives. And, and Rudolph, it's, it's wonderful as always to have you in the podcast. Do you plan on um, starting your podcast in the near future? I do indeed. I think we're all looking forward to that. The more artificial life podcasts, the better. And I think your, your particular angle and, and set of interests would be uh, wonderful to have in a, a podcasting form. Our next Biota Live uh, will be with regards to the value of artificial life, which ultimately tags into some of this artificial life in industry and obviously some of the stuff that uh, William Rudolph and I have been discussing this evening. The visions of the Evo Grid will continue as well. I'm looking forward to having a number of future participants. If you're listening to this podcast and you've been listening to previous Biota Lives with Bruce on, if you've been listening to the talks that Bruce has done as we put in the Biota feed, and you have particular questions about about the Evo grid specifically, or if you have your own unique vision, which may in fact be completely independent. I mean, this is what interests me about Natasha Vitamore in particular, is that she hasn't been part of Bruce's discussion with the Evo grid. She brings to the table a kind of transhumanist perspective and a wide variety of, of big name philosophies associated with this. So it's going to be very interesting brainstorming with her. I'd like to, again, thank William R. Buckley for the chance to chat with him this evening. It's been absolutely wonderful, and I look forward to having future chats with him and his uh, kind of continued reading and instigation in the Biota community. And thanks also for Rudolph for calling in, and thanks also for, for everyone for listening. Look forward to having another chat. You enjoy.